electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Steve Grasso, Bono and Eisen, Jeff Mills and Nadine Terman. Tonight on Fast, we're tracking the after-hours action shares of Dropbox, Expedia and Virgin Galactic. All three of the stocks on the move right now on earnings are breaking down the numbers straight ahead. Plus, Robinhood retreats. The stock pulling back following yesterday's monster rally. We'll dive into what is driving this action. And later, Nadine has taken a mound to pitch her next best idea why she thinks this auto stock is ready for the fast line. We will bring you the name. We start off with the risks to the reopening. The Delta variant continuing to spread with more than 100,000 new COVID cases reported in the last day. That's causing companies to delay their return to work plans. The latest, Amazon, which says it will not require employees to come back to the office until next year. It joins the ranks of BlackRock, Twitter, and others, which are also pushing back their returns. Meantime, other major events like the New York Auto Show have been canceled, and perhaps the risks are causing concern consumers to tighten their purse strings. New data from Bank of America showing credit card spending has slowed dramatically in recent days. But with the S&P at all-time highs, have markets already priced in a Delta-induced slowdown? Or are investors ignoring the threat? Grasso, where do you stand on this? So I think this is like the part two of this, where everyone already has the, the first time that it happened. Everyone was nervous. Everyone was nervous about hoarding toilet paper or cleaning solutions and everything else. Now, I, I almost, I'm not belittling this, but I think people are sitting back saying, you know what? I have what I need. I'd rather work from home. So you have Amazon saying, I'll push it back. You have Microsoft saying, I'll push it back. Wells saying, I'll push it back. So I think people are getting into that. This is the new normal, if you will. Uh, people have enough money. People are sitting at home. If you don't have a job, you have money being sent to you. Uh-huh. If you have a job, you have money. The higher end has money. So I don't think there's anyone that's really lacking or desperate for cash. I think the retail population is okay. I think the, the retail sector, I should say, is okay. I think by and large, people are okay, which means the economy is okay, which means that the market's okay. But there's a whole ripple effect. I mean, if offices don't open, I mean, take a look just right here in Times Square, right? Broadway is not quite open yet. Offices around here are not quite open. And there are a lot of restaurants and hotels that aren't open either because they are waiting. So there is a trickle-down effect if businesses aren't going to open, if things are delayed. That means the economy's recovery could also be delayed, right? Uh, I would tend to agree. Uh, I think you both make some good points here. So I think, to Steve's point, there's already a playbook, and there's some, some normalcy to the abnormal, if you will. <clears throat> and so people know, listen, we're going to work from home. They've adjusted. You've seen durable goods been the, be the main purchasers as opposed to services, and people have kind of tightened those purse strings. That was happening before we had all of the foresight that we now have now and insight as to what the Fed will do. And I think now the posture very much is that we have a Fed put, and people are operating as such, and people in the market have now seen that the only thing that has appreciated during this most catastrophic of time has been assets. And I think they're going to continue to deploy capital as such. Yeah, the notion of the Fed put, I guess it is alive and well. And there's an extra reason, at least at this point, Nadine, for the Fed to say, you know what, we're not going to move so fast. 
You're right, Mel. And I think there's one other element, which is if you had had a really huge reopening this summer, there probably would have been some deceleration in the fall. There's just natural colds, flus, kids going back to school, other issues. But now it's almost like a, a slow reopening. And in, in some ways that feels better, whether it's here or in Europe and other parts of the world, you understand that there is growth coming versus having seen it this summer. So I think that's also why you could see assets continue to rise. That's an interesting point, Jeff Mills. And instead of just having this sort of off to the races recovery, that it's a slower, steadier recovery that maybe the markets can digest and accept uh, more easily. Yeah, I think there, there's definitely something to that. And I think a lot of that does come down to the Fed. If things get too hot too quickly, the market starts to worry about the Fed stepping in. And obviously that becomes problematic. We saw what happened after the June meeting. Um, and you've also seen, you know, obviously the index hasn't reacted. We're, you know, at or near all-time highs here. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of that's been driven by the technology stocks of the world, those larger market cap stocks of the world. So you've seen rotation there and away from your typical, you know, Caterpillars, Deer, URI. So in a lot of ways, I think the market has factored in some of this growth scare already where flows into the triple Qs have been extreme. Flows into TLT have been extreme. So maybe the market actually has priced some of this in, but it's been under the surface. And I've been looking at some of these relationships just to see where cyclicality is and where it might be going. And if I look at discretionary versus staples, you're starting to see discretionary outperform here on an equally weighted basis again. If I look at semis versus software, we talked a little bit about the cyclicality of semis on Monday. Semis starting to catch some wind here. So I think a lot of that tells us that perhaps some of this growth scare was priced in. The market is, is sort of prepared for that. And now we're actually rotating back to more of a cyclical leadership. For more on this whole thing, let's bring in Steve Leisman to get his take. Um, Steve, obviously watches all data. And you saw this Bank of America report, which is based on aggregated Bank of America credit cards. So it's pretty recent data. It's as of the end of July. And what they're seeing is a, a moderate a moderation, I should say, in spending. What do you think the data tells us at this point, Steve? You know, we could be seeing some of the Delta variant stuff creeping in. Um, I'm ultimately optimistic about all this, Melissa. I think it's going to happen and it's happening um, I just don't think anybody has the right metric to benchmark the reopening of a pandemic against. I mean, I don't know where you go back to 1918. That was a very different economy. Uh, plus the idea of the amount of fiscal stimulus and, of course, monetary policy stimulus that's out there. I don't think anybody knows what the right thing is to expect here. Um, I think by now some people thought we would have been off to the races and, and, and not looking back over our shoulders. Suddenly we are. I think that has an impact. And when I look to tomorrow's jobs report, I think there may be some of that in there. Uh, we're looking for 850,000, but some of the high-frequency data I look at kind of comports with the Bank of America idea that maybe there is some slowing. It won't be as bad as May, but may not be as good as June. So, Steve, uh, it's Steve Grasso. Uh, glad to be with you. So now, now you and I have had Yo, conversations Steve. over the last years, uh, last couple of years, based on the word transitory. Where do you stand now? This has to be so perplexing for everyone in your field, in your space, and, and you watch this on a day-to-day -day basis. What do you think about, A, the 10-year and the word transitory and how Chairman Powell has been dealing with this? So I want to give you a full answer on that, but Steve, I just want to just tick off one aspect of this because one of the things I have been not, I'm going to say most surprised about is that the inflation problem did not matter tremendously to companies. I think that's one of the most interesting 
aspects of this whole inflation surge. When you look at profits, and what we did is we chronicled almost every comment together with Robert Hum and Nicholas Wells on the CNBC data team, every comment made in an earnings call about inflation, and we looked at how those companies did, they largely did well. So you could have predicted this inflation, but I'm not sure you would have made money betting against companies in that regard. So put that to the side. That's one aspect of it. You asked me about the transitory nature of this. I think a bulk of it is indeed transitory. I think the idea that, for example, OPEC uh, uh, volume or output is not back to where it was before the pandemic. Airline fares, they fell way down. They've been coming back, but they're sort of in line with where they were before the pandemic now. So that's part of it. Um, The question that's not answerable right now is I think we're sort of on the cusp right now of if an inflationary mindset sets in. You get wage demands that because of higher inflation that lead to higher inflation down the road and rising prices. I don't think we're there yet. I think if some of these things edge off, you saw copper edge off, you saw lumber come, come off. I think that once we get, two things have to happen. First, we have to restock the shelves of the goods that are out there. And then we have to get back the inventories. That's something we didn't really think about. You look at like car inventories. Inventories across the board are well below where they were. It's just a two-stage restocking process to get back to the pricing dynamic that we had before the pandemic. The cars are an interesting point, Steve, although part of that is chip shortage related. In terms of, of wages, what we've seen, exactly. I think, in, in a lot of earnings report is, is wage inflation and the need to pay, you know, the anticipation of increased labor costs into the back half of the year. I mean, we heard that from General Motors. We heard that from an Uber and a Lyft and so on and so forth. You know, could the silver lining of a Delta-induced sort of speed bump in this economic recovery is that the economy has time to work out these kinks in terms of shortages, in terms of inflation, whether it's transitory or not, there's more time to sort of work through the issue. There is, Melissa, but you sort of nailed my main area of concern, which I hadn't said before, which is this. In in, in one scenario, wages go up along with inflation. Inflation drops and wages remain high and we're in good shape. Here's the problem. Right now, when I look at real earnings, in other words, inflation-adjusted earnings, they are not keeping pace with inflation. So what has to happen is employees have to go back to their bosses and say, you know what? Thanks for the raise, buddy, but it's not enough. And that's where you get an inflationary dynamic. So I want to see the rate of inflation begin to come down and keep those wages high, and then people will be better off. One other aspect of this, which has been interesting to me, and I don't think we know fully what the story is, but you guys were talking about tech early. This rise of inflation should create a premium for productivity-enhancing technology out there. I think you're seeing some of that in the trade that's out there, in the purchases, in the numbers, in the earnings. But I think this continues where the premium for uh, companies right now is to find ways to use technology to bring down labor costs and all sorts of costs out there. All right. Steve, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Steve Leisman. Nadine Terman, what are you expecting tomorrow on Jobs Report? No, we're expecting it to be pretty strong. Um, although I wouldn't hang my hat on just this one number. You've seen that you know people are spending on services. Unemployment is still high, you know, but we're making our way down here. I just think that this is a slow recovery. And so I think tomorrow is going to show that. I'm a little bit on the opposite end of Steve, though. I think that inflation isn't just transitory. It kind of sticks at a higher level. Um, So it feels more inflationary than if you saw it um, come down and be more deflationary. So I think we do have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, But I'm just tomorrow for me, it's a number, but it's one of many numbers that we look at. 
I mean, if they hike the price of toilet paper, I'm, not, I'm fully not expecting that price to go down when, when commodity costs come down. I think the Charmin's always going to cost more. Um, Bono, in terms of where we are priced in the market here, do you think that we are priced in for, for maybe not, not just a Delta-induced speed bump, but all the, the issues that we've sort of highlighted here? We're definitely not priced for a return of what we saw with the first go around. <clears throat> and you can look at the VIX, you can look at price to earnings ratios, you can look at valuations, you can look at any objective metric, and I think they all tell you a similar situation. What, what is seemingly lost behind all of this is that you still have massive liquidity. And I, I really think it's that simple. We can sit here and try to parse data and make timelines, but, but ultimately you, it, the Fed is the one institution that you cannot bet against. And ultimately, it just makes a lot of sense, particularly where, where rates are and, and where we are globally in terms of possibly recovering and possibly hitting a hiccup. We have all types of stresses on the, on the medical system, and we have uh, international relations tension with China. I, I really think you, you, parcel, par, sorry, you parse all of that, but ultimately what has caused us to continue to levitate and trade at these levels is liquidity, and that has not changed. You know what's interesting is when you said you can't bet against the Fed. And the 10-year yield has perplexed a lot of people, right? Why, why are we not seeing that rise? And I think it's all about positioning. You had everyone saying, he's going to stop buying bonds. So when that happens, you're saying, i got to short him. And then when the yields did not pop or when he continues to buy them, you have to cover them. And what happens when you cover them? It sends yields back down. So I don't know if it's really an indication of inflation or lack thereof or just positioning in treasuries. Right. Uh, we've got an earnings alert here on Expedia. Shares are low in the after hours. Let's get to Christina Partsnevelis with the details. Christina. Yeah, thank you. So the online travel shopping company gave us pretty much a mixed bag today. Miss on the bottom line. Losses came in at $1.13, so that's worse than expected. But sales came in slightly higher than expected at $2.11 billion. And although Expedia has benefited from stronger vacation rental performance in domestic travel, there's continued weakness in international travel, corporate travel. And the company said that they had high consumer interest in much smaller, more affordable accommodations. So think like a, a small hotel motel in a tiny town versus a villa in Monaco. So not necessarily good for margins. The CEO did say that the recent COVID variant continues to create uncertainty and, quote, Unfortunately, the road to full travel recovery remain, remains bumpy until more of the world is vaccinated. The stock, like you said, plunging in after hours trading right now, you can see it's down well over almost 6%. Uh, and that's led by the dire outlook for travel in the near term. But the stock is still up about 14% or so year to date. Back to you. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parsonevelis. Uh Jeff Mills, what do you say on Expedia? Well, Expedia is at a very interesting price level at the moment. It, it's bumping up in the after hour against that old 2017 all-time high. It's also almost exactly the level of the rising 200-day moving average. So I do think holding this level is particularly important, at least if you're thinking about trading the stock. Uh, the valuation is a little bit more in line now with some of its peers. I think about Booking.com. I think right now, the nod goes to Booking on valuation and its earnings reported. It clearly reacted much better. Do you want to be in online travel, Steve, at this point in time? Uh, I, think, I think eventually it will recover. And, and, and Jeff had alluded to the chart. So the 200-day moving average is 151.15, so almost on point to where it is. But it has outperformed bookings for quite some time now. I believe Expedia is up 22% a year-to-date against bookings, which is basically flat year-to-date. So this is a put-up-or-shut-up thing, but I, but I think if you're going to see any further ra- rally in the travel mm-hmm. industry, it'll be with the underperformer, not the outperformer, which has been Expedia. 
All right. Coming up, shares of Robinhood sinking in today's session after yesterday's monster rally. We'll tell you what is behind the big move lower. Plus, we've got more earnings coming your way. Dropbox and Virgin Galactic on the move in the after hours. We'll bring you all the details when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Robinhood falling hard following yesterday's monster rally. Let's get to Kate Rooney with more on this trade. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Robinhood stock closing 27 percent lower today in a sharp reversal from that rally just yesterday. It closed around 50 bucks a share, well above that $38 per share price where the trading app went public just last week. But it has been a volatile few days for this name. And part of what sparked the weakness earlier was headlines that insiders can now sell. I've been talking to venture capital investors today who say it doesn't necessarily translate to a wave of insiders dumping stock. They now have the choice to sell. And among the firms in that group of potential sellers today that Robinhood disclosed in a regulatory filing, we had New Enterprise Associates, early investor there, Ribbit Capital, Index Ventures, all three of those firms backed Robinhood back in January during the GameStop saga. And finally, Andreessen Horowitz as well. We did also get a bearish note out from Wolf Research that could be weighing on shares too. The firm initiating coverage at a $45 price target, calling it uninvestable on both the long and the short side. They say it's too expensive to short. And on the long side, they cite what they call meme stock risk with yesterday's run-up regulatory risk as well. If payment for order flow comes under more pressure, they say that is nearly impossible to handicap. And they say there are some early signs of weakening retail trading activity. Melissa, back to you. So, Kate, just so I understand it, the the people who are now allowed to sell, are these separate people from the initial, quote unquote, insiders who are allowed to sell up to 15 percent of their holdings at IPO? 
So this was disclosed in a July filing. So we knew that there were a certain level of insiders that would be able to sell. This actually goes back to January. If you remember, they raised about $3.5 billion from their VC investors. It was in the form of convertible debt. So it converted to equity at the IPO price. We knew that they were selling. We got more information on exactly how much they could sell. The numbers there, so Ribbit, uh, NEA, for example, could, is now able to sell about 4% of their shares. And to be clear, they're now all able to sell, but they're still the majority shareholders. NEA, for example, and some of these firms own up to 10 percent of the company still. It gives them the optionality. We haven't confirmed if they are sellers. And a lot of them, I've been making a ton of calls today. Venture capital investors are very nervous to actually say if they sold. And there's a chance that they didn't. So that's that's sort of the takeaway here is that it's unclear. The initial reaction by investors was a little bit of fear that insiders were quickly running to dump the stock, which does not seem to be the case. All right. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney with a scoop on Robin Hood. Bono in, how do you feel about Hood? I mean, nothing to see here, right? I, <laughs> I, I remember I got up here when we were talking about GameStop and AMC. Um, Grasso alluded to it earlier in terms of supply and demand, but this is clearly an example of this purely being driven by supply and demand. There's no valuation. I I lauded some of the research that was being done by the public, by retail investors, where they're going in, looking at short interest, looking at holders, and understanding the the mechanics of optionality and how a short squeeze works. I see none of that coming to bear here. There's much less uh, observable data for one to form a trading thesis around. This purely, I mean, what possibly could have come out that would cause a company to lose 25% of its value? I mean, that fundamental question seems to be lost in this whole trading scenario. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it all hinges. This does feel like this is going to be a stock that we are hanging on the last headline for price direction. Yesterday, everyone was reaching for it. Everyone was uh, tripping over themselves to up buy as it. Much they wanted as 80 a piece of it. Plus percent. Exactly. It's still up 30, 38, 40% from its IPO. So when you have an embedded group of dedicated people, now we could argue over whether the people that actually use it hate Robinhood now or love Robinhood, but you still have an embedded force behind you that will carry your flag ultimately. That you can't bet against for me. And I think we could be looking at the stock at 250, at 300, and no one would be shocked, right? Or you could be looking at a 30. And no one's going to be shocked, too. So it's going to be dependent on the last headline, where payment for order flow goes, and what Gary Gensler, Gensler wants to do. Is it going to be a pilot program? And does that allow Robinhood to still hang on? And it's sort of in that gray area. But this is not one that I would bet against. I actually thought about buying it yesterday. I said, this you is did? too... I when thought it about up? it. When it was on its way up. And I, I was going to say, are you nuts? Yes, yes. But that's, I, I am a cowboy when it comes to these type of names. And I think most people that play in this name are going to be shoot-from-the-hip type people, okay. and they're not going to be buy-and-hold. But today, down 27% didn't tempt you. No, it does, it does tempt me, and, okay, I, and I, I, will be, I will be in this stock. Bet, play, and shoot. Those three terms pretty <laughs> right, much sum it up. associated with this stock, which is, which is maybe how a lot of its, its trader base, Jeff Mills, regards the stock market, which is interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. And I didn't read that wolf note, but the first thing that came to my mind was uninvestable because as soon as you start getting into that meme stock bucket, it's just very difficult to judge price direction. It can go significantly higher. You have no idea for how long. So it's, it's a hard stock to trade. And I, I've been hearing a lot of negative longer term takes on the company. And I, I hate to pile on, but 
I'm going to in just the sense that I don't know that price cutting alone or a, a fancy front end is necessarily sustainable disruption and it's enough to drive the company going forward. You know, I think it's a, it's a great platform for new traders. That's clear. But beyond that, you know, what's next for the company? I think the average account size for Robinhood is somewhere around $3,500. I have an account for my seven-year-old daughter set up, but once balances grow, once you get a little bit more sophisticated, that gamification element becomes a little bit less appealing and you still have all of those risks uh, like competition, regulatory risk, uh, even a market downturn, and then obviously the current valuation. So. Well, the value proposition isn't necessarily unique anymore now that most online brokerages offer $0 um, trading, Nadine. So you take a look at that in terms of the value proposition, then in terms of the business model, it's, constant, it's payment for order flow, the majority of its revenues, and then within that, it's a concentrated number of participants paying for that order flow. So it seems like risk built on risk here. Mel, you're right. And I think the point about the payment for order flow is so important because you just know it's like a game of musical chairs. Sometime all the chairs are going to get pulled out and you don't want to be the one left playing the game, sitting waiting for the chair that's nowhere near you. And that's what's happening here, right? Is that it's this unknown, but pretty certain that something's going to happen negative in that, in that regard. They're not going to be able to keep all those revenues, which are very profitable. So then it comes down to, well, what is their competitive edge? And because there isn't a lot of trading history because of who's propping it up. It's really hard to have any kind of fundamentals on this. And even from a trading perspective, getting trading ranges and the like, it's just too wide of a range. So I just sit out. I did read the report. And, and this is the kind of thing you just say, I'm going to sit out. I'm not going to bet against it. I'm not going to bet for it. I just sit out. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The earnings just keep rolling in. We're digging into two big after-hours movers. Plus, Nadine's winding up to throw some heat. She's taking the mound next to give you her fast pitch. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shehi a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Virgin Galactic and Dropbox on the move after reporting results. The conference calls are underway. We've got full team coverage. We kick things off with Morgan Brennan on Virgin Galactic. Morgan. Hey, Mel. Good to see you. Well, we're fresh off of founder Richard Branson's trip to the edge of space. Virgin Galactic reporting a wider than expected loss and revenue of just 571000 But here's the big news. Ticket sales are now reopen. Offerings ranging from a single seat to a full flight buyout price starting at $450,000 a seat. For microgravity and professional astronaut training, $600,000 a seat. And that compares to 200 to 250K that was charged for those first 600 reservations a number of years ago. Now, on the call, which is still going on, CEO Michael Colglazier saying there's, quote, tangible evidence of deep consumer interest in our service. He even expects repeat customers. So talking a lot about that service, about how they're targeting those sales now that they're reopened. Also disclosing the updated timeline to commercial service. Late September for the next test flight. That's going to be revenue generating. It's going to be for the Italian Air Force. Behind that, modifications, enhancements to the Mothership Eve 
Keep in mind, the spaceship is air-launched. Then you have another test flight of the spaceship Unity, this first spaceship, with commercial service commencing in Q3 of 2022. Now, in terms of some of the enhancements that they're implementing to their vehicles, they're looking to reduce turnaround to four to five weeks between flights, and they're ultimately working toward 100 flights between major inspections. Also worth noting, that second spaceship that's in production right now, VSS Imagine, is going to be going through its test flights as we get into 2022 as well. But as I mentioned, the call is still ongoing. Shares, though, are up 5% right now. So people who signed up a long time ago paid much less than what people will have to pay now yeah. for a seat on space. I mean, I, I guess it's because they were taking more of a, of a gamble that this actually happened, and now it's more of a sure thing. I when does that price come down? I mean, isn't that the ultimate goal of Virgin Galactic? The- Yes, the ultimate goal of Virgin Galactic and also its competitor, Blue Origin, which is also operational and also um, taking money for tickets on its future flights as well, with Bezos saying just a couple weeks ago that they've already booked almost $100 million in sales there, too. Uh, Either one of these companies, you speak to them, they say there is more demand than capacity currently, and that's part of the reason you're seeing the prices increase uh, because of that, at least in the near term, but longer term. The game plan here is to get enough spaceships into these fleets and the turnaround times fast enough that you do ultimately see those prices come down and this this service, this type of service, become more mainstream. Very similar trajectory is what's expected to, say, the early days of aviation. All right. Morgan, thank you. Morgan Brennan, good to see you. You too. Jeff Mills, you've been all over this name for a while. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll keep repeating the same thing, and I think Morgan hit on a lot of it, but it's speculative by nature because of the business model. So you have to figure out how many people are going to pay for it. Are you going to have those repeat customers? What does competition look like? So I think if you're a shareholder, you just have to have the right expectations in owning the stock. It's going to be volatile. You're going to have to be patient. I do think it's at an interesting level right now. Another stock that's right at its rising 200-day. Perhaps that's why you're seeing the the reaction after hours on, on some of that that positive news. So, you know, I I, I think the stock is risky. Um, it's one of those sort of put it put it in your drawer, don't look at it kind of names. Uh, if I hold it, I would hold it in a smaller position. But if I'm interested in getting exposure just to space generally, I know it's sort of a hokey name and I've mentioned it before, but there's that UFO ETF where Virgin is the largest holding, but then you get exposure to other companies like Maxar, Iridium, other, other names that I do like. So I've been long uh, Virgin Galactic since summer of 2020. I bought it at around 15 and change. And I do uh, apply Jeff's mentality of you have to close your eyes and forget you own it sometimes. I've been frustrated with management. I think management has done a poor job in in communicating. As of late, that Blue Origin uh, $28 million seat, that was what sparked a bid Mm -hmm. underneath Virgin Galactic. Now, the other thing they haven't talked about is point-to-point travel. Right. 90 minutes from New York to London, that's going to grab a lot of eyeballs and a lot of investment dollars. But that's like way down the line. Yeah. And if they're not talking about this stuff now, so the other one's even further down the line. But I think people are more, as we've seen with Boom Supersonic, as we've seen with some of these other companies, people are more interested in point to point travel, how I can get across the the ocean or across the pond, if you will, in under, you know, two hours versus can I go up in a pseudo spacesuit for four minutes? Right. Uh, let's take a look at Dropbox here. Shares are up by about 3% on the back of earnings. Josh Lipton's got the numbers. Josh. 
So, Melissa, heading into this report, Dropbox was up already about 40% this year. It was trading right around its 52-week highs. Now higher here in the after hours, company beating on the top and bottom, paying users better than expected, annual recurring revenue better as well. As for guidance, which they just gave on the call, let me give you that. For Q3, they say they're looking for between 543 and 546 million. Strew is at 538. And for the year, they're now raising their guidance, looking for between 2.136 and 2.142 billion. I did speak with Rishi Jaluria over at RBC. He says Q2 solid across the board, showing signs of the business stabilizing, maintaining a double-digit growth rate, he says, while expanding margins. Rishi's rating is now performed, he says, committed to margin expansion, unique go-to-market model, and attractively valued. On the call, CEO Drew Houston saying that a distributed work model is here to stay. He says Dropbox is uniquely positioned to support that. We continue to be focused, he says, on making collaboration seamless, organizing user content, and driving operational excellence. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Bonwin, your thoughts on Dropbox? I mean, taking a look at the stock chart, I mean, this is a textbook uptrend. I mean, up and to the right, I think it made a move from 24 to 32. I would say the one concern here is that the price target I think it's around 31 half or $33 is currently trading about 32. So I don't know how much upside there really is here. But g- given the backdrop of where valuations are, you have a name that's essentially u- ubiquitous with data sharing and storage. Uh, at 22, 21 and a half times valuation, I think it's like a safe hold. But this name does tend to trade volatile and reverse trend after earnings. So I would probably pick my spots there. All right. Coming up, Penn National and DraftKings, both winning big in today's session. Sports betting stocks each inking deals in the gambling world. We've got the details coming up. But first, our own Nadine Terman is taking the mound and winding up to give you her fast pitch. She says this auto stock is a total home run. We'll bring you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. This mystery stock has been on a major tear this year and is also Nadine Terman's best idea. She's stepping up to the mound to deliver a fast pitch. Nadine, show us what you got. All right, Mel, it's Volkswagen. First, they've really had an early mover advantage. And what do I mean by that? Their addressable market right now is about $2 trillion, And for all that they're doing, it's going to turn into $5 trillion by 2030. They have invested capital. They've created technology that other people don't have. In fact, they're licensing it from them. And they have a global platform that other players don't have. They're Europe's largest EV player. They're their largest auto player. And what do we see today? The president of the U.S. saying that we've got to have 50% of our cars EV by 2030. So these guys have an early mover advantage. They've transitioned to standard modules that they're using to leverage their growth. Also, they have more software in their cars, which is really important for margins. And then also they have a battery factory, basically a gigafactory in Germany that's going to help them grow. So I love that. That's number one, early mover advantage. Two, their re-rating depends on execution. And what I hate is when a company needs to you know, change into new markets or they have to do acquisitions. These guys just have to execute their plan. Easy. And number three, it's an attractive investment right now. And what do I mean by that is that management team lowballed. They are already having 8.8% margins, and they're saying for a total of 2021, they will have between 6 to 7.5% margins. So that would mean that the last half of the year has to be terrible, which we know isn't the case. Also, you get a 4 to 5% dividend yield. And also, they have free cash flow for the first half of $15 billion. And what they're saying is for the second half, 
Um, well, they're sorry, they're saying the 15 billion for the full year. They've already had 12 billion in the bag. So I just think that there's a lot more room to run there. They streamlined costs. Um, they've taken out 25% of their headcount. They've refinanced their debt. Lots of things to love here. So to six to seven times PE, four times EBITDA, including operating leases. I like this name, and I think that you're going to be able to hold this one. You can put this away in the drawer. Okay. Bono in here has got a question for you, Nadine. Hey, Dean, pretty compelling pitch there, particularly around the uh, financials. I have a quick question. In terms of what risks do you see U.S. and Chinese EV automakers posing here in terms of possibly infringing on market share? Sure. Well, the Chinese have obviously been very, very strong. But when we're looking at where they're selling into, it's a little bit less of an issue because they've had a lead and only 6% of their business is actually in China. So there's been a lot written about a concern around China and sales in China. But I actually don't think that's a problem. And if you think the competitive nature of it, I think everyone's going to succeed over time. These just guys have an early mover advantage. All right, no more questions. It is time to vote. Are you buying Nadine's pitch on Volkswagen? Jeff Mills, the man, the only man in America who's got a fire going in August. Tell us where your vote is. <laughs> it's a balmy 90 degrees down here in South Carolina. The fire's lovely. Uh, I vote yes. I, you know, I'm a big believer. We talk about it with Ford. We talk about it with GM. But that re-rating story relative to some of these autos, who get EV right, I, I think uh, Volkswagen definitely falls in that bucket. So, yeah, it's a yes for me. All right. Grasso, what do you say? So, it's 90 degrees outside, 115 in Jeff's room where he's got that fire <laughs> kicking in. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say it's a buy. I, it's held this level. The, the problem I have with this is that the 50-day and 100-day have rolled over. It's got to hold the 198 level. So, if you buy it here, breaks 198, exit the trade. It's dry heat in South Carolina. <laughs> Bonoan. Nadine for the win. Very compelling pitch. Wow. <laughs> wow, a clean sweep, Nadine. The traders have spoken, but it is your turn out there. Are you buying Nadine's fast pitch on Volkswagen? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll reveal the results later on in the show. And coming up, the sports betting stocks making some big moves in the gambling space. We'll bring you all the details when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is a big day for the sports betting space with shares of Penn National surging after a $2 billion acquisition, $2 billion acquisition of Score Media. For more deal details, let's get to Contessa Brewer. Contessa. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, these are crazy stock moves, not only for the Canadian sports content powerhouse, the score, but also we saw for Penn National and a deal that allows Penn to bring in a bunch of third party operations in-house. For $2 billion, Penn gets a company that had a close yesterday of a market cap of less than a billion bucks. Founder and CEO John Levy, though, has built a slick media platform that integrates sports betting content, market access in Canada, and then he gets an engineering team that Jay Snowden really admires. Number one sports media app in all of Canada, the number three in North America. And he's a big believer that integration of media and sports betting is what's going to create the winners long term. Another big deal of the day. If data drives sports betting here, DraftKings just stepped into the driver's seat with Genius Sports fueling its car. 
Is that a little too much metaphor for you? By partnering with Genius in April, Genius won sports. uh, This is what happened. In April, Genius Sports won the rights to distribute official NFL data. And then DraftKings will get that data. Plus, it gets proprietary data, gets live video feeds of more than 170,000 other events per year. And oh, by the way, keep an eye on these data providers. Genius, Sport Radar, Stats Perform, they are scooping up streaming rights and content deals around the world. These are crucial data deals, and they're coming to the table, Melissa, with a lot of power. Fascinating. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Jeff Mills, you've been on Penn National for quite some time. What do you make of this deal? Listen, I I really like the deal, quite honestly, and I like the DraftKings deal, too. And I think this is where sports betting is going. It's about the move to digital. It's about legalization. I think over the next three years, you'll probably have 80 percent of states here in the U.S., legalized sports betting. So these are really important trends. And I feel like we're in the early innings of some of these major partnerships, the technology itself, and just people consuming sports through this betting lens. So I I love the acquisition. I think it it aligns with their partnership with Barstool. Uh, They had good earnings today. They beat on top and bottom line. And they're also 50% off of an all-time high. I think the 136 price probably wasn't justified. But here at 25 times forward, I think there's definite upside. You know, it's interesting, Bono, and I never thought about data as being so important to these types of apps, but it makes total sense. You make a good point. I mean, I personally love the DraftKings move. Um, I think Pin is doing tremendous things as well. But this DraftKings move, data is literally at the heart of everything that we do now, whether it be sports, whether it be marketing, whether it be optimization. You are definitely looking under the hood to see how, how the data is affecting, how are we targeting things. You see it. I mean, I can't say anything out loud without seeing it on my phone. So, I mean, I, I think the, the use case is justified. Um, I, I think it's a tremendous move. So DraftKings has an uneven chart, but I'd rather be a buyer of that. Penn, Penn's chart is, is uh, definitely in a downward trend, so something has to happen there. DraftKings has been bumping uh, down or up, depending on how you look at it off this support level. So I'd like to be a buyer there. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name Paysafe that was a SPAC that is just hovering around this $10 level. And hopefully these, these guys have deals with so many of these people in these marketplaces that ultimately I think it should be a tailwind for them and they come out with earnings middle of August. All right. Coming up, energy fueling up today and trying to recoup from this week's losses, last month's losses. But the options markets may be betting on more pain at the pump. We'll dive into the details next. And there's still time to weigh in on Nadine's fast pitch on Volkswagen. Go to our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Etsy. Catch a full interview, exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, check out energy stocks moving higher after a tough start to the week. But one trader in the options market is betting that this move could just be a temporary reprieve for the energy trade. Mike Co Mike joins us the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So we were taking a look at XOP. This is the ETF that tracks the exploration uh, side of the oil business. And we saw it trade six times the average daily put volume today. Now, we need to look back to March to see when somebody put on a large put spread. It was the 7350 put spread that they put on expiring in September. 15,000 times they rolled that off today and actually rolled out until March of next year, buying 22,000 of the 7055 put spreads. 
net-net, they spent about $5 million in incremental premium to roll that trade out. Now, you'll notice that that downside target is maybe not as far down as the 50 strike that they were choosing before, but still, this is either a big hedging trade or a big bearish bet. Nadine, you're in energy. I think you're in Shell. That's right. Shell and BP, other ones. Everyone hated the Shell one last week, but it's up. So um, we're taking a little bit opposite side here, and that is, you know, we look at the XOP. It's got two and a half, one upside to downside. I'm looking at a range of maybe 88 to 104. I know it was trading at 93 sometime today when I looked at it. Um, but you really have to say that it seems like it's at the bottom of its range, its trading range. And so I would trade it. But what we do prefer to have is the businesses, someone like Shell, who's improving margins, doing uh, obviously ESG initiatives, um, as well as BP. So we prefer to play the companies themselves. But I've got nothing wrong with uh, trading a stock like this, too. You know, when you look at this, you have to you have to be wary of uh, ESG, as Nadine just said. So BP's chart looks OK. It's bounced off the recent lows. The large integrated names actually look better to me than if you go to the refiner names or anything else, because the other names are factoring in if we have a second slowdown or if we go into lockdown yet again. So it's value in the energy complex that you have to look at. And Nadine's names definitely speak to the value complex. Yeah. Bonwin, where are you in energy? You know, I'm, I'm kind of on the sidelines. You know, I, I think it was a big reopening darling and definitely had its run. I think given the unknowns, you don't always have to have a position on it. And right now, I just don't have enough conviction um, for U.S. domestic. I am playing energy via, via um, other markets. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time where you'll find Mike Co. All right. There's just a few more minutes left to vote. In our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money, are you buying Nadine's fast pitch on Volkswagen? We got the results and the final trades up next. Time to reveal if you at home are buying Nadine's pitch on Volkswagen. Apparently, America agrees with the traders. 56% of voters saying, yes, we are buyers. Good job, Nadine. Home run. Let's uh, get to the final trade here. Around the horn we go. Nadine, what do you say? Got to stick with EV. Early mover advantage and attractive setup. Jeff. I'm going to double down on the automakers here. I think Toyota has a really interesting chart. Recently broke out of a seven-year base. It's run up quite a bit, but at 10 times forward, I think there's room here. TM. Bono and Eisen. So to answer your earlier question about how I'm playing energy, Petrobras, PBR, knocked the cover off the ball in terms of earnings, pulling dividends for to return value to shareholders. Steve Grasso. So Jeff talked about doubling down. I'm quadrupling down on this name, and anyone who's been long on this name understands it. Paysafe, P-S-F-E. I think you're going to see a turn in this name. All right. Thank you out there for watching Fast Money. Join us again tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Meantime. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.